You are now listening to Green Left Weekly Radio on A55 AM with me and, well, me, Jacob and Zane. Good morning. Alright. Guten Morgen. Um, before we, I guess, um, we, um, start with, um, the broadcast, I'd like to acknowledge that, um, Green Left Radio is being broadcast to you from 3CR Studios in Smith Street, Collingwood, um, which is built on the traditional lands of the Wongdron, Wongdri people of the Kulin Nation. Sovereignty was never ceded, and as with the many other First Nations across the continent, this always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Yeah. Okay, so um, Zane, what do you, um, what's sort of the latest headline news um, that's been happening? Um, I know South Australia had a big power out um, only just uh, on Tuesday night, wasn't it? Um, yeah. It was completely cut off without power. Um, and of course, um, in its relation to politics, um, a number of politicians were quick to blame because um, South Australia is one of the few states which has a very large um, renewable energy infrastructure. Mm. Uh, I think it's, um, it's... Isn't it the only state that is 100% renewables at this point? Or uh, Not yet. It's, it's at, on average, it's at about 40%. Yep. Although sometimes when there's a lot of wind, it, it can be up you know, a lot higher. Before these blackouts, I think uh, they were getting about 70% of their energy from wind, and that's caused... Out of all of Australia, um, South Australia, particularly the sort of Adelaide area, that's where you've got a whole bunch of people and really good wind resource. They've consistently throughout the year got really good wind resource, so it's the best place in the country, the most economic place to build wind farms. And they've got a few there. Um, And, of course, the upshot of this big storm was not for... um, well, particularly conservative uh, political commentators and politicians to look at it and go, ah, gee, the uh, climatologists have been predicting that if we keep heating up the planet, we're going to get more severe weather events. And, well, this was a very severe storm, wasn't it? No. Immediately, before the dust has even settled on this huge storm, they're going, oh, the blackouts must be because of all those bloody wind farms. (laughs) I think it's um, um, there's a uh, there's an article um, print, um, that's being reprinted in the Green Left Weekly from the conversation that kind of like um, analyzes um, you know response from um, climate scientists um, answering um, you know answering these kind of questions and um, one of the um, one of the um, uh, well, so there's a number of different responses that I don't think we'll be able to go into every single detail. Yeah. Um, but one of them is um, that in response to the question, was it because of wind or wind turbines? Um, Dylan uh, McConnell, who's a research fellow at the Melbourne Energy U- Institute of University of Melbourne, um, it says it has. He, his response is it has everything to do with wind because that's what blew over the transmission lines. Um, yet he's uh, clean, clearly um, saying that you know it has nothing to do with um, South Australia's wind far turbines. Um, transform, transformation lines are large power lines that take electricity from generators to the small distribution lines that bring power to our homes. Um, and then kind of brings up the points of like you know South Australia's energy generation is a mix of mixture of um, wind, gas and some solar and as of this year zero zero coal 
um, a lot of um, generation, and he goes and says, you know, a lot of generation capacity was lost because of the transmission failure. Because of that, there was a voltage drop, which triggered safety protection measures that stripped the um, Haywood interconnector that connects South uh, um, South Australia, Victoria. And, you know, he's clear to make the point that this could have happened in any state or with any generation technology. Mm. Yes, uh, Hugh Sadler, who's uh, an honorary associate professor, professor at the Centre for Climate, Economics and Policy at ANU, says that uh, in, uh, in Western Europe, if one transmission line is knocked out, as appears to have happened in South Australia, and there was, uh, just as an aside, there's some really um, striking photos, something like 30 of those giant uh, stanchions, those big... Uh, high voltage towers got blown over in the wind that's a serious storm to blow those things over and uh, Hugh Sadler's saying in Western Europe if one transmission line is knocked out then the dense network of nearby transmission lines is usually able to supply demand by alternative pathways without any overloading by contrast in Australia the national electricity market or NEM grid as a whole is widely recognised as being one of the most spread out or skinny, in inverted commas, interconnected electricity grids in the world, which makes sense because we're a country of a bit under 25 million people spread across an area the size of continental Europe. So as with our roads and other infrastructure, it's pretty spread out. Um, so this means there is a much lower density of alternative transmission pathways for electricity to flow. So, yeah. I guess um, the last kind of section, um, last call of question in response um, is, um, was this um, extreme weather event a result of climate change? And Andrew King, who's a climate extremes research fellow, says that, you know, it's the role of climate change in this storm is unclear. Um, and Connor, he goes into sort of in the article, probably won't relay it on the um, radio program here, but he, um, he just sort of goes on about the science of how it happened. Um, but he says in general, um, the storms that track across South Australia are moving southwards with climate change. For very intense storms like the one that hit South Australia yesterday, we don't, um, really have enough data to make a definite statement on how they are changing in this region. Um, you know, we can't say that, you know, arguing that you know, can't say that climate change is to blame without a full analysis event, which I think is a completely um, fair point. I guess in terms of like um, the kind of political kind of implications of this is um, in, term, in terms of like, you know, when these kind of natural disasters happen, you know, you can sort of see it. Um, there's always, um, there always needs to be sort of a good political response to it because in the case of um, New Orleans, when Hurricane Christina came, there was a lot of, you know, displacement of, of um, you know African Americans from their homes, mm. and of course um, there was I'm not sure if, I don't think this was the same things that happened in South Australia because it's not in the same scale. But there was the, you know the case of like you know um, 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 certain financial interests taking advantage of the event, you know, to implement sort of privatisation. Um, and of course, I think politically, what the right um, right wing um, conservatives are trying to do. Um, trying to do in response to vendors argue this is why we shouldn't invest in renewables which should mm. be obviously opposed because it, it's not only wrong and it's scientific and based on the scientific evidence it's also a way of you know taking um, a way of you know shifting the beta way of, of 
of what the debate that we need to have about, you know, we need renewable energies, we need to address climate change, and etc. Mm, absolutely. And uh, David White, who's a climate activist, I'm on this email list, he made a good point. There's been this ongoing campaign to build a um, solar thermal plant at Port Augusta, and that's the alternative argument in talking about grid security and security of energy supply. If there was a solar thermal plant or multiple solar thermal plants in South Australia, that would be a good way of... Uh, providing energy security, but ultimately it's those 30 massive towers that got blown over that's the issue here. Um, so, yes, but certainly it's the nature of renewable energy. Because it is distributed and because it gains its strength from being distributed, it is a fact that we're going to have to build more. We're going to have to strengthen those transmission networks across Australia as we move towards renewables, and that's not happening under the current sort of market system so mm. it's opened a, a bit of a discussion about an important aspect of renewables that doesn't get talked about that often because as Mark Diesendorf once said it's not sexy to talk about grid upgrades but uh, it's, uh, it's pretty topical at the moment. Yeah okay and guess in um, other news before we um, move on to our first interview um, there's um, many ha- in the news, um, there was a tragic um, shooting of, um, indigenous, of indigenous man Dennis John Undulan. Um, this happened in New South Wales, um, and it was um, it was in, uh, fortunate to say he, uh, he was shot by um, um, the local police in that area in at Kalwa in New South Wales. Um, there hasn't been really you know much information. There's been no information on you know. Are the police officers involved going to be charged for, you know, what is essentially murder or, and what is going to be the sort of... Oh, just to clarify, I don't think, uh, Doolin was killed. Yep. I think he was shot. Shot. In the buttock. Yep. I, I don't think he was killed. So he's still alive? Yeah. I, but the key thing was, he was completely unarmed mm-hmm. and he was trying to, he, he, he had a, uh, he's alleged to have had a weapon. Mm. Uh, like a piece of wood, a, a matic handle, and was threatening the police. He dropped that, turned around to run away. Mm. It's it's alleged in an eyewitness report, and then police shot him in the in the buttock to because yeah. they couldn't be bothered chasing him or something. So yeah. fortunately, he is still alive. Yep, but and it's in, a, presumably in the hospital, being treated. Hopefully, hopefully. Uh, but a completely inappropriate use of. Like, you don't just shoot people because you couldn't be bothered chasing them. Yeah. It's disgraceful. Yeah, it's, um, it just reminds me of, um, the recent event that happened, um, last week, um, that I was actually a witness to of, um, many would know about the anti-racism activist Jaffrey, who can be seen, you know, wait, putting up a, a sign, you know, stop racism now into the intersection between Flinders and Street and Swanson Street. Mm. Um, last Friday, um, and this was being, has been reported in The Age, um, he was, and I was also <laughs> happened to be there, um, to be a witness to the event, and there was also a video footage, um, of where he, you know, he was basically, you know, pep, ta- apprehended by police and, you know, pepper sprayed, which was a complete excessive use of force, especially since, 
Um, according to Jaffrey, he was actually had received permission to protest at that particular spot. Um, but there was actually um, a great sign of solidarity and support um, shown in response to um, the incident, with um, over a hundred people shown up at a protest um, the next day to you know to demand some accountability for you know for the actions of the Victorian police. Mm. And what are the police claiming was their reason for attacking Jeffrey? Um, there's been no comment at this point. No, nothing um, report, nothing that, um, no comment in the media as far as I know. So they just got up on the wrong side of bed one morning and went, oh, let's just go and attack that Stop Racism Now guy who hangs out mm. at Flinders Street Station. Yeah. Yeah, at this point, it's just um, unclear because they're, like, there's no media, res- um, no official statement from the police or anything on this particular incident. Huh. But okay. you, you were there, and I mean, yeah, yeah. Well, I've seen Jeffrey. That's his gig. He, he, it's completely peaceful. He just yep. silently stands there holding up the sign. And um, uh, presumably, he was um, there yesterday, um, uh, um, protesting. You know, doing the same for him. No, no police response. So this might have been. Could it, to speculate, could have been um, the result of one individual police officer mm. um, acting on his own. Um, yeah, or fr- it was actually free if you see the video. So, um, individual police officers. But yeah, at this point, we don't have a clear. Anyway, I've got to we'll go move on to announcement and yeah. get ready for our next just, interview. Just before you do, too. Um, so, Lali, our regular co-host on Greenleft Radio on, on Friday mornings, she also hosts Solidarity Breakfast on um, Saturday mornings, and she'll be interviewing Jeffrey about that incident tomorrow. So, yeah, stay t- um, tune into that program if you can. It'll be at 7:45 a.m. tomorrow morning. Yeah. All right. Um, so we're going to have our, our next our first interview in a few minutes. I have just caught it. Unfortunately, um, she's um, she just woke up, so she just needs a uh, drink of water. So we'll give her. Um, so we'll um, put her in in um, about two minutes. Um, but I know that feeling. But yes, um, the person we're going to be interviewing is Gail, who is currently um, um, part of a protest at um, Pine Gap. And um, for the listeners that don't know what Pine Gap is, there's been actually a number of advertisements about um, the convergence on FreeCR, but Pine Gap is a US military base um, that's in the Alice, Alice Springs, isn't it? Yeah, just outside Alice Springs. Yes, just outside Alice Springs. And so um, a group of um, anti-war and peace activists have... Um, you know, gone to, um, have converged at um, Pine Gap to, you know, to protest, you know, as a message of against, you know, against U.S. imperialism, mm-hmm. against sort of the role that um, U.S., the United States plays in interf- um, what you would say interfering with Australian foreign policy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're, we're, we're having Gail on the line who'll be talking about that, you know, what they're doing up there and um, the occupation and so on. Okay. Mm. Um, but I guess um, just to, uh, to um, before we move on to the interview, um, what has been hap- um, one other major news story is um, the re-elect um, Jeremy Corbyn um, winning um, the leadership election again um, with an even greater majority um, um, than before. So you know, if despite that, despite the fact that there was all these attempts by the right wing of the Labor Party to you know to repress. Um, votes, um, you know, to prevent, you know, labor, um, prevent fr- um, people from joining the Labor Party and having a right to, um, to vote in the leadership elections. Um, so yeah, this is really exciting, um, news. Um, in, um, I actually watched, um, haven't watched Jeremy Corbyn's speech from the conference yet, but I actually had watched, um, John McConnell, um, McConnell, um, who is, 
essentially like the shadow and um, the shadow chancellor mm-hmm. or basically he's the equivalent of Jeremy Corbyn's right hand man like yeah. in, in a sense um anyway he gave a really great speech you know on you know what this means you know the economic future and he was very clear to use the word socialism which i thought was quite exciting mm. um you know we can be, you know there was this message positive message that we can you know we can build a fairer britain we can build a britain that doesn't leave the poorest and most marginalized behind um and you know it's an example of solidarity and we can call we call it socialism so yeah just a very staunch very exciting kind of talk and there was a general kind of general there's a generally very exciting mood going on around the uk with um um, with Jeremy Corbyn and how he's, you know, mobilising the ma- masses of people and mm. um, getting, um, getting a lot. There's also lots of young people who have never been involved in activist politics before, or just getting involved in, and it's just very exciting to see. Mm. Yeah, it's a long road yet. It'll be interesting to see what happens if a if a Corbyn government is elected in. Well, it'd be like four and a half years' time or something yeah. when the well, next election is... Well, one yeah. thing John McConnell said that is um, they have to actually prepare for election at any time because in light of the whole Brexit and all this sort of things that are happening in British politics, essentially what could happen is the election could be called at any time. Um, yeah, right. So they've got to be you know, ready, ready to campaign, ready to mobilise. And, um, and, of course, John McConnell said, we're going to win. <laughs> Alright, um, so I'm going to, um, put, um, Gail on the line. Oh, let's see if it works. Um, hello? Let's wait. Oh, yeah. Ah, hello, Gail. Hi, Jacob. Alright, so, um, we're interviewing, um, Gail on Green Left Weekly Radio on Freecey Yard, 855am. Um, she is currently part of, um, the sort of, um, convergence at Pine Gap where they are currently protesting. Um, is it, um, is it currently, um, so Gail, is there currently a blockade happening? Because I just read there's a news story that's, um, shifted, um, so why don't you give the sort of background to what's happening there? Oh, <clears throat> we, there was a blockade, um, there will be a blockade today. Uh, there was one the day before yesterday, and yesterday there were a series of activities, um, one in which I was involved in where we, um, blockaded the Raytheon facility here in Alice Springs, um, which is um, not signposted and most people wouldn't even know it was there. Hmm. And so what is this um, this outpost? The Raytheon facility. Raytheon is one of the biggest arms traders uh, in the globe. It um, is the third biggest one. Um, and in it, it's re- responsible for or contracted, sorry, to be um, providing technical support to the Pine Gap base. It's also a manufacturer of cluster bombs, which are prohibited by the UN. So while we were there, it emerged that Raytheon um, perhaps wasn't holding the contract any longer, and Lock- in fact Lockheed Martin was holding that contract now. So Lockheed Martin is the biggest arms dealer in the world. So we just said, well, we've upgraded from the third biggest to the first biggest <laughs> and um, continued the blockade. And that blockade lasted for 10 hours. So no one went in that facility for the whole day. And that's also a staging post for workers within the Alice Springs township that are bussed out to the Pine Gap facility, which is about 16 k's 
um, south of Alice Springs. So um, we we were um, quite feeling that we've put a bit of a dent in, even if the workers were delayed by four hours to get out to Pine Gap, that's four hours where they weren't contributing to the technology that targets innocent people. Um, so we felt like we had made a bit of a dent in the war machine, even if it was only for a few hours. Yeah, good work and uh, bringing some attention to it. Um, what's Can you just sort of refresh a bit about the, the kind of the strategic importance of that military base for the US war machine in, in Pine Gap? Yes, so um, it's uh, many people actually aren't aware that Pine Gap is a joint US-Australian military base um, situated here in Alice Springs. It's part of a network of US bases around the world. There are nearly 800 US bases outside of the US. Mm. Um, Pine Gap is an absolutely strategic part of that network. Um, there's an array of um, satellite um, dishes, which are actually covered with domes so that you can't see which, in what direction they're pointing. And the US actually absolutely relies on Pine Gap um, to transmit signals. Uh, it's used in the, um, the use of drones in the Middle East. So whilst an operator operates a drone strike, perhaps back in Nevada in the US that relies on the signals to be transmitted through Pine Gap to be able to drop those bombs in the Middle East. So the drone strikes in uh, Yemen, in Somalia, in Afghanistan, Pakistan are all mediated through there. So that's the Southern Hemisphere, the Northern Hemisphere equivalent that is, of that is Menworth Hill in the UK. So the base was set up nearly 50 years ago um, and Australia has been, continued to be a client state of the US. Um, mm. so that, and we also are seeing a build-up as a um, US military in Darwin. They're building up to a permanent uh, force of 2,500 US military personnel. The thing about Pine Gap is whilst there are US and Australian military personnel there, there are also a very large number of privately contracted um, companies. And the, that, the reason for that is that it's not just um, the, the bombing capability that's produced, that's mediated through there. It's also the collection of data. So um, it's also a, a base where a whole lot of um, all the signals, telecommunications signals are, are mined through there for intelligence. So the data is sent uh, back to the US for um, to the NSA. So it's in effect a, a CIA base as well. Hmm. Yeah, so in, in, a, in a sense that um, kind of like, you know, as, as it's um, said in the media, rele um, the media release that you put up about, you know, um, the kind of role that Pine Gap, you know, um, you know, renders us sort of compliant in sort, um, in sort of the murder of many innocent people by bombs dropped by drones by the US and, and it's facilitated through, you know, the array, um, the radon array of, of Pine Gap. 
Um, mm. Another thing I want to sort of ask is um, what is kind of like the role, you know, in the media release quotes that Draper Grinch, um said that, you know, uh, mentioned um, that there's a, a lot of pro- um, huge profit-making corporations are directly involved in the operation of Pine Gap. And you mentioned some of this before, but I like to sort of what, what's what are the, what are the what are the um, the corporations that are directly involved in this operation Pine Gap, and um, what is their stake in this? Yeah, as we mentioned before, Raytheon, um, Raytheon, Lockheed Martin, uh, Boeing. Um, even IBM provide computer support. So we have these companies that, um, for instance, a company like Raytheon, it's been in business nearly 100 years and it's very explicit about being in the business of war. We have these private corporations that are intricately involved with the US military that profit on the death and destruction um, so they're actually invested in the military-industrial complex, and we're talking about a whole group of um, a very small group of um, very wealthy people who who make huge profit. And our government is aiding and abetting in this um, in this war machine. And as the people, we actually have no say. Our prime minister can take us to war without consulting us without even a debate in Parliament. We're currently involved in the atrocities in Syria and uh, and the people in Australia have actually not said, had been consulted in that. So we have all these arrangements uh, with the US and with um, these private profit-making corporations and most of the Australians wouldn't even know that it's happening. We talk to people in our springs... Some people kind of, they're vague about, oh yeah, Pine Gap, but they don't actually know what it's doing. Other people, of course, do know because they're working there. There's a staff of about, um, contracted staff, um, who work for those big companies living in Alice Springs, but they're actually not really wanting to talk too many of us about it. Um, so yeah, um, I guess in terms of your um, your protest, what um, what would you sort of say? You know the importance of you know um, you know um, um, of civil disobedience, you know, and action to be taken against um, Pine Gap, and you know raising awareness about these issues. Well, um, as with all the issues that we're facing, the the issues that oppress people, whether they're here in um, here in Australia, and I think. Coming out to Alice Springs from Melbourne, you know, we read about the discrimination, the apartheid, the oppression of Aboriginal people, but to actually come and see it out here is really shocking and it's just totally normalised. It's like every day, you know, nobody mm. blinks an eye so right it, through to the oppression of people. Is this the first bombed. time you've oh. been to Alice, uh, to Alice Springs, actually? Yes, we've been in the town as well and trying to do some outreach as well as being out here yeah, right. near the base in the camps. There are uh, several camps, two camps with lots of different groups having converged together. We, it's the common, it is a common oppression mm. and so we have a government who's actually not listening to the people. It is up to us through acts of civil disobedience to draw attention, to ask people to wake up to what's happening and to join us. In And another objective of our actions uh, 
as well as drawing attention is to, even if it's only for a few hours, um, is to stop that uh, war machine. Mm. Yeah. I guess um, to go, um, we're running out of time now. I guess the last sort of question is, you know, how can you know people, you know, support your camp, um, the current campaign, the campaign, and your the actions that you're doing right now around Pine Gap and Alice Springs? And is there a particular website um, or campaign group that people can link into to keep up to date with what's happening? Yes, there's um, closepinegap.org. Uh, there's a Twitter account account as well, so Close Pine Gap. Also, there's, we've been using the hashtag Close Pine Gap, uh, disarm US bases out. Um, so if people can just amplify the message, it's a very long way to come to Alice Springs. Um, and we uh, have, have these series of actions and different affinity groups uh, taking out their own actions. But today is a massive blockade. Tomorrow there's the... the IPAN, the Peace Network Conference, um, and Senator Lublum is actually uh, speaking tonight as a, in a forum. So a whole lot of different things happening. So if people are on Facebook, are on Twitter, if they could just amplify uh, the messages. Quite a few people here tweeting, and um, there are media releases that you can share on closepointgap.org. All right, thank you very much. Um, and um, so, yeah, so thank you very much for the interview. It was great um, hearing all about that. And I uh, sorry it was so early in the morning that we woke you up. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Just the first last two mornings, we've got up at three to go out and do action. Yeah. So we haven't had very much sleep. Yeah, morning. understandable. Oh, sorry. <laughs> What's the time there now? Be like five thirty or something. Uh, no, it's just half an hour behind Melbourne. Oh, okay. yeah. That's what I forgot yeah, to mention yeah. when I called you. I f- just remembered that Darwin is like 30 minutes behind, so 7.15 is like 6, 6.45. Yeah, yeah, sorry. I didn't... Work. I forgot myself. Yeah, <laughs> I forgot. <laughs> anyway, thank no, you very much. Yeah, thanks heaps. Thank you. And good on you. Rock on. Thank you. Yeah, keep up the fight. Thanks. Bye. <laughs> Right. That's uh, Gay Emanuel there from the Close Point Gap uh, protest happening out near Alice Springs this weekend. Uh, it is Friday the 30th of September <coughs> and it is the AFL public holiday. So yeah. if you're having the day off, mm, enjoy. Enjoy it. <laughs> and go for the Bulldogs. <laughs> <laughs> go the cray cray. <laughs> All right. So we're back on um, Green Left Weekly Radio, um, listening to on freecr.org.au and or 8.5 a.m. All right. So um, in terms of um, um, news, um, one of the sort of recent sort of um, discussion um, things that's been happening is um, these sort of proposals of um, attacking welfare by um, the Liberal government on you know, September um, on September 20th. This is from an article written by Mark Gleeson in the latest Green Left Weekly. Um, days after the passage of the omnibus legislation that enabled the implementation of the federal budget, um, Minister for Social Services Christian Porter released the baseline relation report by PricewaterhouseCoopers as part of the federal government's priority investment approach. Um, basically, what, what it amounts is... Um, to a financial audit of the welfare system. Um, the the f- report focused on the cost to the welfare system over a prolonged period of three categories of reci- reci- recipients, um, young carers, young parents and students. Um, this report said that um, it found 
6,600 students who move from state payments to unemployment benefits will spend an average of 37 years on welfare. Um, 1,760 young carers will be on welfare for 43 years at a cost of um, 5.2 billion and 430, 70 young single parents are expected to receive income support for 45 years. Um, of course, um, the, the Department of, um, Department of Social Services said groups identified by the priority investment approach will receive support from current programs and from new and, and innovative process policy responses to be developed through the ninety um, six point one million try. Um, of course, the Jobs Australia um, said in response, given um, the policy cautious support. Um, they said there are risks that the reports can be um, that this report could be used to justify more punitive arrangements rather than greater support. Um, of course, the go- in response, the government is trying to you know make make and it's kind of said around you know the mainstream media there was saying the fact that there's going to be there's so too many people dependent on welfare um, that this is why we need to cut welfare rather than actually seeing you know the fact that people are the reason why. Possibly, you know, for example, young students spend that, those so many years on welfare. And this is my opinion is, you know, we spend a lot of young students spend like three to four years on a degree. Um, they graduate and they can barely find an entry level job. Mm. Uh, They're overqualified to flip burgers at McDonald's because they've got a tertiary degree and they're underqualified or there's just not jobs for them based on their qualification. And, um, of course, and, um, the, um, so basically it has, it's, it's, it's the, basically the government is trying to use this report, you know, to justify, you know, mm. sort of a tax on the welfare. I mean, it's been, it started with, um, back when Tony Abbott was prime minister, there was this proposal and it might be coming back, um, um, to, um, for people, um, on new start unemployment that they would have to wait at least one month or four, yeah, one month or alternatively four weeks um, before they would be allowed to receive um, new start payments. Essentially, they would have to starve for four weeks mm. or get or try and scrounge as much as they can off, you know, friends or family before yeah. they can get any kind of... If they in. have friends who have got spare money, which, like, if you're from a community that's, like, if all your friends are also on Centrelink, which is not unheard of there are you know whole suburbs whole areas of the country where everyone's pretty poor then there is no one to scab money off and you're like in an absolutely dire situation risking homelessness and and full destitution Mm. and and as it stands centrelink have had their staff cut so i've i've been on centrelink before it was some time ago it, it took like four weeks for your claim to get processed and then you'd get back paid. And it looks like what this is proposing is you're not even allowed to claim Centrelink for four mm. weeks and then you'll still wait probably another four weeks, maybe it's longer these days, mm. for the claim to get processed. I've heard of people going through the whole of semester one at uni. They've been at uni for a couple of months waiting for their Oz study claim to get approved yeah. and they're just like uh, starving <laughs> hello I've, I, I can't even eat me goreng anymore yeah well um a f- most important part to mention and i've sort of talked in the vague kind of um sense of yes um this latest report of you know the amount of people on welfare the categories of people who are going to be staying on welfare um 
Uh, the the so um the Australian government is actually look um looking towards um the New Zealand model of welfare um which um to, as inspiration for what they should do next um in fact um in this article um, New Zealand's model for attacking the poor by Sue Bradford she um outlines the sort of you know the you know she's someone from New Zealand who's horrified that the Australian government is looking to New Zealand as a model for um, um, welfare reform. Um, um, the New Zealand government um, introduced like a range of reforms that include, you know, introducing compulsory income management um, for young people, um, you know, stripping them, you know, autonomy, you know, respect, um, you know, subjecting um, any woman on a benefit who has another child to um, work testing from the time her baby turns one. So basically, as soon as a, a mother, say a single mother has a child, um, for whatever reason, oh, um, baby's one now. Baby's you one take now. care yep. of itself. Just chuck it into yep. daycare. Go and get a job. Spend all of your money on daycare. And there was also further sanctions, including drug testing on um, some drug seekers, because after all, creating this uh, this sort of stereotype that you know all people on welfare uh, are drug addicts, or which is because it's also I would argue a ridiculous um, sort of measure, because you know. If someone is um, having this criminalisation of drug addicts, you know, the alternative mm. should be, you know, to actually treat their addiction, not punish them. Because mm. um, I know if I'm, like, in destitution, of, of, I'm living on, like, sub-poverty welfare allowance, I've been trying to find a job for months and there's just no jobs there, and now the government's micromanaging my finances and telling me what I am and am not allowed to buy, gee, I certainly wouldn't be tempted to get high. Yeah. Um, and, then, and then there's also... Um there was uh, um, there's also another um, reforms um, in this New Zealand model and core, including you know um, it's almost like encouraging women um, benefactories and their daughters of of reproductive age to, um, to undergo um, long lasting contraception. So they're basically forced. They're saying that you you can't be on welfare unless you can prove that you're on birth control. Um, which is, and which is, which is another sort of violation of you know civil liberties because you know what is it. Um, how is it the government's business? Um, mm. And of course, um, well, there was the other part of the it's new model, sort of eugenic slant yeah, today. <laughs> is replacing unemployment sickness and sole parent benefits with one job seeker support category, um, subjected you know people to a wide range on welfare to a wide range of compulsive work tests and sanctions. Um, and of course, <laughs> basically, this is the most and the last thing here is I think very another wrong thing it's kind of similar to what's happening happening in britain and regards you know you know in welfare there's um disability kind of benefits um that people receive and i actually know actually have a friend in new zealand who is a recipient of this um and basically it's um, it's the introduction of a workability assessment um making many people who are formerly on a protected invalids benefit subject to work testing based on british sickness and disability reforms so basically People who might have been previously categorised as disabled or not fit to work might be subject to work testing again to you know to make sure they're disabled and not fit to work. And of course, there's some disabilities that um, that are kind of like you know there's some people have disabilities that can be seen as invisible, and of course mm. they still wouldn't be fit to work. 
um, but they're still um, attempting to subject them to these sort of testing, which you don't even know if it's accurate, to mm-hmm. argue whether it worked um, and whether they could um, be deserved to receive payments. Um, so, yeah, this is... Um, um, this model is like, you know, if it, it's definitely very concerning if um, the Australian government is, you know, looking to this as a model for how, where to reform our welfare system and, and Centrelink. Mm. And meanwhile, there's all those corporations and all those super wealthy individuals paying no tax on about $450 odd billion per year of revenue. Mm. Right, um, but you so put the boot into people who are a victim of the structural unemployment that is that is a feature of capitalism, and you put the boot into dis- disabled people instead of making sure corporations and super wealthy pay their tax. All right, um, we're going to be um, getting ready for our next interview, um, which is an interview with the CEO of the Refugee Council Australia, um, who I'll introduce later. Okay, so we have um, Tim O'Connor on the line, um, from um, who is the CEO of the Refugee Council of Australia. Um, we're going to be talking. I'm here talking with him about um, Australia's um, new commitments to address global displacement and their kind of response um, on their what um, they think the Australian government's resolution on global uh, offshore detention should be. Hello, Tim. Good morning. Uh, good morning. Um, so, um, what can you? Um, what is your comment, sort of, on? Because um, I know at the sort of um, Obama's um, leadership uh, leaders summit in New York, um, there was um, there was this call for you know countries to make um, new commit um, new and significant commitments to resolving sort of displacement crisis as a precondition for attendance. And Malcolm Turnbull um, yesterday, um, not yesterday, was probably. That's from the media release, um, made announced that Australia would per- be permanently increasing the annual refugee intake to 18750 committing a further $130 million in aid. So what is kind of the, your response to, would your response to this be? Well, we certainly welcome the Prime Minister's uh, increase in the refugee intake. Of course, it's still below the 20,000 figure that peaked in um, the number of the refugees who were brought into Australia in, in 2012. So Australia can certainly do a lot more, but it's a, certainly a step in the right direction. Um, there was actually two summits that went on in New York. So the, the, the first one was really the UN summit where 150 countries came together and worked on um, establishing mechanism for more durable solutions. Of course, at the moment, we've got a displacement like we've never seen in the world, more than 65 million people who've been forced from their homes. Uh, over 24 million of them recognised as refugees. And last year, uh, less than 200,000 of them were, were resettled. So, you know, at that rate, it's going to take many hundreds of years uh, to resettle just the refugees we have today. So we need to look beyond resettlement uh, and look at how people can live with dignity and um, live with, you know, their basic rights met when, when they are forced from their homes. Yeah. Um, and in um, in um, your statement, you um, sort of urges or sort of, you urge like a um, you, you welcome this commitment, but you urge a resolution on you know the fact that the Australian government um, is investing in you know offshore mandatory detention of in the case of Nauru and um, Christmas Island and um, and Manus. Um, and so what, what um, I would like to you know hear what is your sort of statement? You know what you think of, on the Turnbull's sort of gov- um, government policy on. Um, on mandatory detention, uh, you know, of course, you know, here we have the, the the dichotomy that Australia or the current government has certainly created for itself, where refugees 
uh, who come to this country are welcomed and well supported, but people who, um, you know, fleeing persecution have come to Australia by boat are virtually tortured. And we see that as, you know, it's the obvious elephant in the room. $130 million over three years to assist people fleeing conflict in the, you know, in Syria is welcome, but we're wasting a billion dollars a year torturing you know, a couple of thousand people on Manus and Nauru. These people are living in horrendous situations, and that's purely of the government making. Uh, and you know, we think the government urgently needs to act, certainly to to bring those people to Australia very, very quickly, and also to assist the other thirty thousand people who are living in our community on temporary visas. Uh, we've seen a huge um, deterioration in their mental health in 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 recent years. Um, these people who struggle to you know get legal access to work, um, get access to education. The lives are really in limbo. And we've seen a marked uh, increase in suicides in, in recent weeks. And that's, that's really alarming. And it's purely because of the government's um, brutal policy towards um, people who have come here fleeing persecution. But the, the reason we do it is because they came by boat. And it's absolutely unfair and it should stop. Hmm. Hey, Zane, you have a question? Um, I'm just wondering about this, this question of... Um the building the delivery of support in in host countries i think in coming decades we're going to see more severe weather events food shortages water shortages what is a um what is a proper global response to movement of people look like how do we resource that properly well it's, it certainly starts with um you know, um, countries like Australia and countries giving aid, being able to dedicate more of their resources to the basic needs of people. But it's also compliant on governments that are countries of first asylum, like, for instance, in our region, Bangladesh or, or Malaysia, Thailand, where I was recently, where currently people who do flee there, you know, maybe the Rohingya coming across the border, there's hundreds of thousands have fled to Bangladesh, but they can't legally access work. Mm. And therefore, because they're... Um, because they're denied that legal access, they're constantly, they, they work for much lower wages or in the black market. They're, they're stood over by, you know, corrupt officials and police officers. Um, it's very difficult for them to get their children access to school or to access adequate health services. And that's where Australian aid really should, could make an enormous difference if it was, um, if, if it was targeted much better. And, and really that's the key. I mean, resettlement, from and it's, you know, the way Australia looks at it is is the answer, and everyone wants to come to Australia. But the reality is, most people want to go back to their their country, back to their family, back to their friends, back to their businesses and their houses. Mm. Um, and we need we need to ensure that while people, uh, you know, are unable to do that, that they can live with dignity in the countries that they do flee to. So Australia has a responsibility, but um, the, the countries of first asylum also have um, a responsibility to those people as well. Mm. Um, I guess another um, kind of um, thing you um, in your in in your um, media releases sort of statement that um, you um, I think you might have mentioned before, but you what is sort of like the um, your proposal? You know, um, our kind of humanitarian sort of obligations to refugees, and what what um you what is can you tell us about sort of the increase that you want to see um, in support um, as opposed to what um, Malcolm Turnbull has. Um, Support, um, supported. Well, it, I mean, it's a, it's a step in the right direction. Absolutely, increasing our the number of refugees we bring in. Australia has the capacity. We we are recognised in the world as probably the best at resettling refugees. And here's the, you know here again is the dichotomy we have between people that come here as 
you know, refugees that come in by plane are treated very well. They're met at the airport. They're taken to, you know, a home that they can get access to for the first 12 months until they get settled. They get English language classes. They can get, um, you know, retrained in, um, the, the uh, employment they had. They, they get access to, you know, their kids can go to school and healthcare, et cetera. But if you come here by boats, <laughs> seeking persecution, we'll send you to Nauru and Manus and deny you your most basic rights and, and basically torture you until you go insane. That, that, it's crazy. So that, that's the most urgent priority. We need to get those people off mm-hmm. Nauru and Manus. We need to, we need to do it today. And it could be done today. They could be brought here to Australia and given the assistance they need to start to rebuild their lives. You know, this, this is a great tragedy in the political porn, um, the political games that are played for these people who are very, very vulnerable and, and we've made their situation worse. So that's ultimately the first priority. But Australia could also increase its refugee intake. We could be bringing in many more people. We've got the capacity to do that in the services. We've got a long history of <clears throat> resettling more than 840,000 people since World War Two, and the integration, you know, here has been fantastic. The Australian community um, <clears throat> in the main accepts refugees. Of course, we have a few dissident um, politicians amongst us who, who have a, a different view on that. But, but the, the record speaks for itself. You know, go to any of our major cities and you see the benefits of the refugee community support. Uh, but we also should be doing a lot more on, on the aid and development front um, in countries in our region like Bangladesh and Thailand and Malaysia to assist those communities. We've got more than a million people in our region who are who are recognised as refugees and displaced from their homes and we, we should be doing a lot more to assist them. Yeah. Um, um, Turnbull has um, recently said that um, he's, um, I think he may even um, said it, might have said it at the summit, um, that he thinks that um, Australia's um, refugee policy um, is a global model and he considers it the best in the world. And um, I'd like to you know, hear your personal kind of response to that. Well, in our view, the obvious element in the room is these people that are being tortured on Nauru and Manus Island. Mm-hmm. There are thousands of people, including children, who've suffered sexual abuse. There's been no charges brought against the people who've, there's been no investigations as, that we can understand that have occurred into this. You know, this is children that mm. we have sent to Nauru who are being sexually abused. We've had a, a man murdered. No one has been brought to justice for these crimes. It, it's an absolute tra- tragedy. And for Malcolm Turnbull to stand up in, in front of the world and say that Australia's got the best border security policy is absolutely outrageous. Um, you know, Australia should be up in arms about this. Uh, we had hundreds of calls from people in, in the community who were so concerned uh, when, you know, when he made those statements last week. And, you know, we, we were angry about it. We've certainly taken that up with the Prime Minister's office. Yeah. Um, okay, we're going a bit um, low on time um, now, but do you sort of have any sort of final statements, um, especially about, you know, the work that Refugee Council Australia is doing um, to... Um, um, to address the sort of the refugee crisis, you know, address um, helping refugees. Well, the, the Refugee Council is a peak body for refugee and asylum seeker organisations. We have more than 200 members across the country, and and you know, they, these are organisations and people that are working every single day to assist refugees and people seeking asylum to integrate into our community and to, to give them assistance. Um, you know, we, we, government cut our funding a couple of years ago, so we rely on public support. Um, but, you know, the, the reality is there are hundreds of thousands, millions of Australians who are deeply concerned about the current policies of our government um, towards people who come here seeking asylum. They must change, and it's only through working together that we'll get that. So I'd encourage people to get onto the Refugee Council website, get in contact with us, um, and, and get involved, because it's only working together we're going to change this um, terrible situation the government has got us in. Here, here. Here, here. Thank you very much. Right. Thanks, thanks, thanks so much for time. talking to us this morning. Tim? Great yeah. pleasure. 
Thank you. Bye. <coughs> Tim O'Connor there from the Refugee Council of Australia. Yeah. Make sure you listen to 3CR because coming up starting next week, there's it's the 40th anniversary of 3CR this year and we're going to be playing some pretty interesting interviews and clips from the vault. So tune in because there's some pretty... 3CR's done some pretty edgy, interesting, hardcore coverage of activist events and happenings over the years, and there'll be some really good stuff to listen to. So it's a good time to be listening to 3CR. Yeah. All right, so now we're on to our activist calendar. Um, usually we would say um, that you, if you want to pick up the latest Green Left Weekly, especially reading some of the articles um, that um, that we're um, um, talking about, referring to in our show. Um, unfortunately, we don't actually. There's no. There'll be no Flinders Street store from 4 to 6 p.m. this Friday, um, due to um, it being a public holiday. But there will. If you want to pick up the latest Green Left Weekly, because um, it, it, the latest issue is a two-week issue, you can pick it up next Friday from 4 to 6 p.m. or tomorrow on Saturday at the Coburg Mall from 10 a.m. to 12. Alright, so now moving on to um, upcoming activist events. Um, we have a documentary premiere of Tunnel Vision, um, which is a documentary that sort of, that is about the campaign to stop the East-West Link, which um, was a winning campaign. Um, so this is going to be like the uh, expiring kind of story about how that campaign was run. Uh, one, I mean, um, that's going to be at 6 p.m. at the Acme Centre in Federation Square, and, um, you can, um, and that's on Sunday. On Monday, next Monday, um, there'll be a public meeting hosted by Refugee Action Collective um, where there'll be a debate between Robert Mann and Chris Breen. Um, well, Robert Mann, who's a professor of politics at La Trobe University, and Chris Breen um, from the Refugee Action Collective debate the issue, and that will be at 6.30pm at the Multicultural Hub, 500 at 506 Elizabeth Street. Um, next Tuesday, um, there'll be a forum on West Papua and the struggle for independence. Um, West Papua was seized by Indonesia in 1969. Um, the occupation has been supported by Australian governments and mining corporations. So this meeting will discuss the West Papua and Freedom Moon and what we can do in solidarity. Um, that's at 6.30pm next Tuesday uh, at the Resistance Centre, which is at level 5, 400 of 407 Swanson Street in the city opposite RMIT, and it's hosted by Socialist Alliance. Um, next weekend, on next Saturday, there'll be a rally for, uh, for marriage equality, 1pm at the State Library. Um, there'll, be, um, there'll be a theatre show at the Shreds Hall, um, Convicted on a Comma, the Shrail Roger Casement. Um, and um, um, basically, it's a, it's, it's a documentary... Um, that is about um, the Easter uprising in Dublin. Um, so that's going to be at 8 p.m. at the old council chambers in Shrades Hall, um, and you can um, and it costs $30 slash 25, and you can make bookings by phoning 93729170. Next Sunday on October the 9th, um, the, it will be Peter Norman Day, where you can honour. Um, will be an opportunity to honour a great Australian who has been ridden out of this country's histories. Um, who Peter Norman, for listeners, was the 1968 Mexico Olympic 200 millimetre um, silver medalist who supported his two American Olympic medalists when they gave the Black Power salute at the podium. Word. And um, the American track um, field and uh, 
and Field Association has designated October 9th as Peter Norman Day to acknowledge his support for human rights. So that will be happening at 12 noon at City Square and Swanson Street in the city. Um, also happening on that same Sunday, um, on October the 9th, will be um, FreeCR will be having an open day. So you um, will be a chance to, um, you know, to check out the studio, you know, to visit, you know, you can find out, you can look in the room where we're doing our show right now. Um, and uh, there'll be like afternoon tea, roving uh, musicians, special on-air broadcasts and the opportunity to step in into the studio and get behind the mic. So that'll be from 12 to 4 p.m. and it's at 21 Smith Street where Free CR is. It's pretty epic. Jacob's actually running the console and it's an old Soviet-era sound desk that runs on valves. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's amazing. <laughs> it's made in the Czech Republic. And also, actually, um, right after the open day, there'll be a fundraiser from West Papua called titled Rocking for West Papua. That'll be at 4 p.m. at the Bendigo Hotel at 125 um, Johnson Street. Um, then in Thursday, October the 13th, um, there'll be a forum on globalization and labor in the 21st century, which will feature Verdi Bergman. Um, so we'll be talking about her new book um, in relation to that topic. Ooh. That's going to be happening at 7 p.m. Um, on Thursday, October the 13th, at the New International Bookshop, Trades Hall, 54 Victoria Street, Carden South. Meredith and Verity Bergman, of course, authors of the seminal work Green Bands, Red Union, about the BLF Green Bands in the 1970s. Yeah. Amazing. So, so that should be an interesting form to go to. Um, on Saturday, October the 15th, which is in um, two weeks and a fortnight away, um, there'll be protest um, no um, nuclear waste dumps on Aboriginal land. Um, it is sort of in response to the fact that South Australian Aboriginal First Nations face severe threats of nuclear waste dumps and need your support. Um, so that will be happening at 11am uh, at the Flinders Street Station at the corner of Flinders and Swanson Street. And that will be on Saturday, October the 15th. Uh, last event um, to announce, um, are, will, there'll be a rally um, on Saturday, November the 5th, the next big um, refugee rights mobilisation. Um, it's time, rally, it's time, bring them here, close the camps, permanent protection now. Um, and it will be happening at 1pm at the State Library, the corner of um, Swanson and Street and La Shrove Streets. Um, that's at Saturday, November the 5th, so plenty of time to get prepared for that and book um, save the date. And it's um, organised by Refugee Action Collective. Rack. Alright, um, so um, we have like two minutes until our next interview. We're going to be interviewing um, someone from Earthworker um, to talk about um, the walk with the valley. I um, guess in terms, um, any sort of quick news stories you want to share, Zane, um, that have, you know, ha- just thinking off the top of my head mm. that is significant to talk about? Um, I don't know. There was a cool uh, ETU thing that I saw going around about the whole South Australian grid debacle, and mm. they had some good photos of those massive power uh, towers that have been blown over. Actually, I on... It really blew my mind seeing those photos, because the, those things are engineered not to blow over, and they're not really... They don't catch the wind. They're made of really quite slender pieces of steel angle. So it takes a very serious storm to blow over multiple towers like that. It's very, very striking to look at. 
Yeah. There's actually, um, just remembered, um, there's one last event actually I can mention. It's happening today oh, yeah. actually. Um, there'll be, um, uh, there's action against, um, the mining abuses in El Salvador, the Philippines and beyond. Um, the, um, take action, stand with Elsa Eldora against Oceana Gold. It's a protest against Oceana Gold, who's a Australian government company suing the Salvadorian government $300, $300 million for imposing a mining moratorium. Um, you can, um, they'll be, that rally will be at the Oceana Gold offices Friday, um, today at 11 a.m. Um, three five seven Collins Street in Melbourne. Yeah, nice. Get along there. They've got a mine in um, the Philippines as well. That's uh, also highly destructive, as is the nature of gold mining. Yeah. All right. Um, so on the line we have um, Anna um, from Earthworker, um, and um, Earthworker had just um, participated in a sort of big walk with, um, for renewables um, all the way to Morwell, which um, took place over five days or from September 19th to September 25th and any sort of errors I made there can be corrected by Anna. Hello Anna. Hi. Alright, so um, well, can you give us, what? Um, how did the walk went? Um, can you give us sort of like a general report back on, you know, you know how it went and, um, you know, and we can go from there? Yep, um, so the walk was over seven days, um, so we took it uh, from Monday to Sunday, walked from Hackenham to Morwell. Um, it went it went really well. Uh, we, you know, we were using it as a chance to connect with communities along the way. So we had a lot of really great conversations um, and like um, discussed the idea of, or you know, a just transition for the valley and how people, you know, can support that and get involved and also use it as an opportunity to talk about cooperatives and, and workplace democracy. Um, in all the communities that we stayed in and walked through, uh, we had about 70 people over the course of the week um, involved, with about 15 people do the whole 100-kilometre walk, um, myself included. Um, and so far we've raised about $20,000 from that effort. Mm. Wow. Nice. Yeah, it's very impressive. <laughs> Um, who were some of the people that you met along the way and in, in those different sort of stopovers or communities that you passed through? Um, a whole range of, of different people. So uh, the towns that we stayed in, we were um, hosted by various groups, ranging from a native bush foods farm in Tainong to um, the Anglican Church in Warrigal, who were... Um, incredibly supportive and let us sleep in their church for the night. Mm. Um, through to like the Bobo Sustainability Network in Yarragon, um, the work on Moi Eco Village. Um, so like a pretty diverse crowd. Um, you know, it certainly wasn't just like you know uh, environmental activists or you know union movement. It was like people really ab- across the whole section of, of community. Hmm. And on the Sunday where the walk finished, there was an announcement that it seemed likely that NG, the French-based company that runs Hazelwood Power Station, would probably be announcing the closure of Hazelwood in the not-too-distant future. Uh, but that was uh, how was that received? That's a bit of an interesting coincidence with the culmination of the walk. Yeah, yeah. So that that was in the 
the age on the Saturday, which was the second last day of the oh, walk. Okay. Yeah. Um, so we we had literally the night before been having a a workshop um, in Yarragon about how you know cooperatives can form part of a just transition away from fossil fuels, and then we woke up to that news on the Saturday, which um, you know the community has been expecting an announcement on Hazelwood for quite some time now, but were led to believe that it would be of a, you know, partial closure, so a quarter or a half of the units at Hazelwood. Um, and the, the news of a full closure in such a short time frame, I think, took a lot of people by surprise um, and was a bit of an upset. So, yeah, on, I mean, it was it was a crazy coincidence. Um, you know, it was a day before we arrived in Morwell. Uh, we were walking through the valley at that point. Um, and so it, it made it very real for a lot of people. Um, before we set out that morning, we had a conversation about, you know, the implications of that announcement. Um, yeah, and I guess it, it made it a very grounded sort of day. Um, you know, it's not a... It's, what we're doing is not some theoretical, in the future we need to have this pretty little, you know, renewable energy system and, and diverse economy in the valley. It's mm. something that's long, long overdue, you know, not only do we need it soon, we needed it a long time ago. Um, yeah, so I guess that just kind of hammered home that point. Yeah, and of, of course, um, Earthworker is, I guess, um, starting from a somewhat smallish base producing solar hot water tanks. So the, the factory has been, the, the equipment's been moved from Dandenong up to Morwell. The plan is to get it started up soon, but in that article about Hazelwood, it talks about up to a 1,000 people losing their job. Um, in, a, in an ideal situation, what, what do you reckon the vision would be for Earthworker ramping up and, I guess, diversifying out of just uh, solar hot water into other areas so that uh, a a decent chunk of those thousand workers might be able to be absorbed into the co-op. What's the vision? Um, Yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, we've always said that, like, Earthworker is not the silver bullet. Mm. We're not the one solution that's going to solve all of the problems in the valley. Um, that's just not realistic. We, what we're offering is is a vision and one part of a solution. Um, so, you know, we're really keen to work with the community initiatives that are already taking place down there. So, um, you know, there's a whole lot of really exciting stuff that's coming from that community, um, and that are looking at at ways to to solve that problem um, and ways to, you know, to help the community through the rocky road of transition over the coming years. Um, for us, like, we're, you know, starting with, with Eureka's Future, with solar hot water systems, as you said, but um, Eureka's Future was always meant to be a model that can be replicated. So, you know, we don't want one giant cooperative employing a 1,000 people um, because that's not good for workplace democracy. We want a, a network of, you know, small to medium-sized cooperatives um, that can work together and support each other, um, but are each, you know, in control of, of their own workplaces. Um, and, you know, there's there's so many possibilities in the Valley. They've got 
the skills and the technology um, to really be like a hub for renewable energy in Australia, which, you know, could be in the form of um, manufacturing wind turbines, for example. That's, that's actually been talked about in the Valley for years now. We had conversations years ago about trying to set up um, wind turbine manufacturing in the Valley. You know, they, they know the energy systems. They've got the right, like, assets in terms of the skills of, and the experience of the people who live there. Um, so, yeah, there's, like, a huge amount of, of possibilities, um, you know, not just solar hot water, not just wind turbines, um, battery storage, um, you know, it, yeah, <laughs> mm. it goes on. And a lot of um, uh, farming and agricultural stuff happening in that area as well. Yeah, definitely. Um, we've also been, uh, we're talking about um, a partnership with a local hemp grower as well down in the valley. Um, so looking at the possibilities for hemp, for um, fibre, for textiles, as well as, you know, I mean, hemp has endless possibilities, the things that you can make from it. But it's also, there's been a lot of really interesting research coming out about using hemp to uh, rehabilitate old mine sites, hmm. specifically looking at coal mines. Um, but, you know, there's, there's a lot of possibilities for using um, that plant to potentially take the the toxins and the heavy metals out of the soil, um, which, you know, decommissioning the mines is going to be a huge amount of work and that itself will create jobs for a while um, because it's a massive, massive task. Mm. Yeah, it's a similar story up in the Hunter Valley with all those mines. The, uh, the, the mining companies will typically put the, put the mine into care and maintenance instead of actually declaring it closed because that would trigger their responsibilities to rehabilitate it. So, yeah, there's a lot of uh, work waiting to be done. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, you know, as we saw with the Morwell Mine Fire a few years ago, if that's not done properly, you know, this idea of care and maintenance, if it's not actually maintained, then it's a huge risk to the community. Mm. Okay, uh, so we're running um, low on time now. Um, I guess the last question to ask, um, Anna, is, um, you know, you've raised $20,000 from this walk and, you know, what's next um, for Earthworker and do you have any sort of plans on the horizon of what we get, what you're going to be doing in the aftermath of um, we've walked with the rally? Yeah, so the money raised um, is going towards the Eureka's Future Workers Cooperative, um, as we said, so we've got a premises and machinery down in Morwell, um, and now it's just in the beginning stages of starting to generate work um, and build up an income base, which you know will either be taking on small bits of, of work in partnership with local businesses, um, or if the government comes through with the procurement that we're asking for, then it will be a much faster um, uptake. Um, so that's procurement, sorry, for solar hot water systems in public housing. And is there a, a kind of timeline? Do you know when it, you're likely to hear back from uh, the Andrews government about that procurement project? Um, your guess is as good as mine. Um, we've been in discussions for quite some time now. Uh, they're ongoing mm. and, you know, everything moves quite slowly with government. So we'll just have to wait and see. Mm. Mm. All right. Well, um, yeah, congratulations. Quite a uh, quite an epic journey 
the walk to the valley and uh yeah it's it's been really successful raising 20 grand like you've said and helping to draw attention to the to the projects and further build community support so yeah keep up the good work yeah keep up the good work yes <laughs> thank yeah. you all right thank you and yeah earth google it check it out on facebook get involved it's a important project so um, we're going um, we're going oh, near until the end of the show. So I'll go. I think we'll go for one last kind of news story um, um, in the um, to talk about um, politics in um, the United States. Um, well, we had you know the U.S. election debate between um, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, but I don't actually think that's really that exciting uh, or that particularly that interesting. Um, what's more interesting is, um, there's been the massive kind of, um, the Black Lives Matter movement, and there's been some recent, um, protests and demonstrations, um, in Charlotte and North Carolina, or which is, was in response, um, to the mur- um, to the murder on September 20th of Keith Lamont Scott, um, a 43-year-old African-American at the hands of police. Mm. Um, yet another kind of example of, um, racial, um, profiling um, Scott's killing came you know, in, it's, um, written here in um, the, an article on the green, latest Green Left Weekly um, came just the day after the release of, um, of unarmed um, Terence Crook Trooper Police which also led um, to angry protests um, in North Carolina um, in response arrogant you know, city and state authorities have only further inflamed the situation by declaring a curfew and a state of emergency because the protests were apparently there's been intense demonstrations. There was a blockade of you know the the site where he was killed, and of course um, the, the 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 most tragic case of this story. Um, you know to tell you a bit about Keith Lamont Scott who was murdered. Um, he was uh, a father of seven. He, you know fam um, who you know basically based on family and neighbor supports. You know waited every day for his son coming home from school in the parking lot. You know where he would eventually be murdered. Um, of course, um, just how this happened was, you know, just before 4 p.m. on September 20th, Charlotte Mecklenburg, um, police officers approached Scott, allegedly mistaking him for a suspect with an outstanding warrant. Police have confirmed that the cop who approached him was an undercover plainclothes officer. Minutes later, J- Scott was fatally shot four times by Officer Brentley Rinson. Um, and of course, the police version of this event is that Scott emerged from his car with a gun in his hand and posed a threat to the officers who were approaching him. They claim to have recovered a gun from the scene. It should be noted that it is actually legal to carry handguns in North Carolina. So whatever the case, it's, um, um, of course, there's footage of, of the shooting from dashboard and body guns, but police um, um, chief Kia Printney said that the videos will not be released to the masses. Um, the family was allowed to rele- um, view the police video. Um, their lawyer, um, Justin Bergen, said the footage shows Scott walking slowly backwards with his hands at the side when he was shot. Bramberg said that it is impossible to tell if Scott had anything in his hands based on this video. Um, other witnesses described the aftermath of the shooting this way. They didn't even take a statement from him, not a statement from his wife, not a statement from his children, not a statement from anybody who was here watching. Who are they going to take the, the statement from? The officer who took his life? Um, you know, he went on to say, you know, you get shackled for reading while black, walking while black, driving while black, running while black, being born black in this country is a goddamn crime. Mm. And I guess now in response to this, um, there was a lot, 
mass protests, as I said before. Um, there were vigils um, in um, honour of his um, life uh, held across the state. Um, there were also the vigils include coordinating actions at five historically black colleges. In Charlotte, um, hundreds of people marched through the central uptown area for many hours. The demonstration was peaceful and included families and children, but police once again, um, you know, in, it says in the article, responded, you know, repression using tear gas and flashbang grenades. You know, this kind of like, you know, echoes um, um, history of like, you know, the civil rights era. Mm. Um, one person later died after being shot in the face during the protest. City officials claimed the shooting was a result of an unknown civilian firing randomly into the crowd, into the crowd. But witnesses um, who at the protest present a different story. They say police began firing non-lethal rubber-coated bullets to drive back protesters who had forced them into a hotel. Many eyewitnesses corroborate um, this amount of police opening fire, making it more likely that officers shoot. What? Oh, we have to wrap it up. Oh, we're running out of mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. All right, so I guess um, to sort of uh, end it, um, that's a current. That was a, currently a pro. Um, that was um, a, some, uh, a bit of a summary from an article in the latest Green Left Weekly about what's happening in Charlotte, um, North Carolina, in response to the murder of um, um, Keith Garment. And you can read more about the background and more on the story in the latest Green Left Weekly. So, right. right. Thank you very much to Anna Boddenberg from Earthworker. Tim O'Connor from the Refugee Council of Australia, Gay Emanuel from the Closed Pine Gap protest. Make sure you tune in tomorrow at 7.45 a.m. for Solidarity Breakfast. Oh, it's actually, um, it starts at 7 a.m. Yep. Um, um, it's just the interview with Jeffrey starts at 7.45 a.m. Yeah. yeah. And uh, stick around now for Beyond Zero Emissions Radio. Have a good public holiday. Thank you, Jacob. Right, thank you, Zane. And um, um, thank you, listeners, for listening to yet another week of Green Left Weekly Radio. <laughs>